I'm Ben Murray, and you're listening to the Forget What You Think You Know podcast. In today's episode, we will be focusing on homelessness in Britain and what impact COVID-19 has had on it. As part of today's episode, we have spoken to people who have faced homelessness, people working on the front line to help those facing it, and experts in the sector. We were doing the work that many of us had come into the homelessness sector to do, which is end homelessness and end rough sleeping. That's Jill Taylor. She's the strategic lead for homelessness at Harangay Council and our first stop on the podcast. I think in the last few years for us, we've learned a lot about rough sleeping in particular. I think before sort of 2017, we didn't really have many rough sleeping services in the borough at all. And so we didn't really understand very much about who was rough sleeping, what was going on for them. Um, And we certainly didn't have as many services available for people as we do now. So probably in the last few years, um, we've definitely seen the number of people on the streets increasing. um, And a lot of those people are people from EU countries um, who might be either newly arrived in the country or find themselves homeless as a result of being in precarious kind of housing or employment situations. Um, But we've also seen a lot of people who have got very complex support needs that are presenting to us who have perhaps British nationals lived here their whole lives, but who've really struggled um, with the kind of cuts to public services and the effect on accessing mental health and drug services in the last few years. So yeah, it's been a big increase. So it sounds like homelessness was on the rise prior to COVID-19, but what was causing these issues? Um, Well, I think most people that work in homelessness would acknowledge that particularly rough sleeping is about a lot more than just housing. But I think at the foundation of of homelessness is the lack of affordable housing for people, particularly those people who are quite vulnerable with different support needs or perhaps for who um, working full time isn't possible. So in London, obviously, there's a significant problem around the price of private rented accommodation and accessing that. But there's also obviously a lot of issues with the reduction in the number of social housing flats and houses available. So that's been a real um, a real factor involved, certainly in London. But I think beyond that, there's a lot of um, complexity around the needs that people have when they're living on the streets. So their health, um, their health needs, their mental health needs, drug services. Um, and I think generally as well, the sense of isolation that a lot of people experience on the streets is, is something that we've really been trying to tackle um, and that affects people's ability to kind of live independently. So there are a number of issues, but how did Harangay Council look at helping these people facing homelessness when all these different factors were in place? So in 2018, we redrafted our rough sleeping strategy and the focus of that really was about thinking about the kind of harms of rough sleeping. So beyond just the fact that people didn't have accommodation, recognising that a lot of people sleeping on the streets had a lot of the, the health issues I was talking about, but that also there was associated issues around antisocial behaviour um, and people being victimised on the streets as well. So the kind of connection across lots of different bits of work the council did. Um, and our first kind of priority really was understanding more about the people on the streets. So when the Rough Sleeping Initiatives programme um, funding came available, we were really fortunate to access some of the first year's funding for that. And we increased our outreach team capacity. So that really helped us in knowing who was on the streets, where they were, what their problems were. Um, and it gave us a local service rather than just the Pan London um, services that are available. 
And since then, we've developed a lot of different things. So we've we recognise that a lot of people weren't able to access accommodation um, in emergency situations or for respite. So we set up a crash pad service, which is a short stay kind of service for people to get off the streets quickly, um, get some stability and good night's sleep and start to move them on their journey away from street homelessness. Um, we've commissioned night shelters, a number of specialist caseworkers working with people that have got very complex immigration, health, housing needs. Um, and we've recently been successful in getting funding for a dedicated social worker and a dedicated rough sleeping health service, which for us in the borough was the first homelessness health service that we've had. So it's been really amazing to be able to offer that to people where they were struggling to access healthcare before. So a lot has changed. So that was the strategy set out by Haringey, and it seemed to be working. Then COVID-19 hits. On 26th of March, Minister for Local Government and Homelessness, Luke Hall, writes to all council leaders asking them to get people living on the streets, housed in safe accommodation to shelter them from the potential dangers COVID-19 poses to their health. This was called the Everyone In Initiative. So how did the council react? It was a shock. I think it was really welcome for us, actually. Um, we really embraced the sort of spirit of the letter that Luke Hall sent and we recognised it was a massive opportunity for us to engage with some people we hadn't been able to before, um, either because they weren't in, they weren't eligible for housing or because they didn't feel able to access it for other reasons. So for us, it was a huge opportunity to do, to do some of the work we knew we needed to do. Um, that's not to say that it was easy. Um, certainly in those first four weeks, I think we brought into emergency accommodations something in the region of 300 people in the first month. Um, and in total, in the three months of lockdown, it was around 700 people that we provided accommodation and support for. Um, and what that really meant was building a kind of entirely new infrastructure. Um, we weren't used to providing accommodation with such urgency for those people. Um, only about 50 of those 700 people would have been in priority need for housing had they approached us before COVID. So it meant that we were suddenly um, not only having to find accommodation for all of the people that we did, but also secure um, food for them, other kinds of welfare support and uh, specialist housing support around kind of what's going on for them in the long term. And that meant everything from working with local mutual aid groups to local volunteers we had people in my team driving food around to various different hotels at the very beginning it was all quite um quite frontier it felt in the beginning most of us working anywhere in the region of housing or communities or homelessness were kind of working 12 hour days seven days a week for that first at least the first month and a half if, and for quite a long time after that in honesty um what was great about it was this sense that you sort of looked around and you thought wow the people I work with are amazing you know they're really insightful really intelligent resourceful people and often we don't really give ourselves that much credit I think in the council um, particularly because we know we're often faced with some really difficult decisions and we can't always help the people that we would want to um, and it kind of it really made me reflect on the negative impact that that has on the kind of public services and how amazing it did feel to look around at your colleagues and think, wow, we're really all working towards this same thing. Everybody here has not only the kind of skill to do this work, but really also the human kind of compassion for other people in our community to keep everyone safe. So for me, that was 
a really positive, if absolutely knackering, thing to do. <laughs> so going forward from here, how will Haringey continue this work? And what are the challenges that faces them? Um, I think at the, at the very start of lockdown, the way we were talking was, this is going to change everything forever. That we can never go back to how things were because of how much we know we can achieve when we're able to and given the opportunity to. Um, and I think I still stand by that. And particularly, I think one of the things that's been amazing that's changed is the kind of response to homeless people around their health. Um, some of the partnerships that we've developed with local organisations and with kind of broader health organisations working in London has been absolutely amazing. And I've never seen, you know, so many people registered with GPs, so many people getting flu jabs now and all sorts of different things that just wouldn't have been available before in the way. So that's been amazing. Um I think the kind of challenge to that or the tension is ultimately the same tensions we always have, which is resources. Um, certainly Haringey Council has spent upwards of four million pounds on this accommodation provision and this support that's available for homeless people. And whilst we're incredibly happy and feel privileged to be able to do that, um, that comes with consequences in the long term for our budgets um, and the settlements that we have had whilst they've been very welcomed just haven't been enough to fund and uh, the, the amount of money that we have spent so I think in the long term without a significant kind of rethink about the way that homelessness services are funded um, both the kind of rough sleeping services but also crucially the supported housing provision that exists for people um, that's longer term I suspect that, unfortunately, lots of things will return to a kind of a normal um, that we had before. So what about the people facing homelessness? What was it like for them going through a pandemic while living on the streets? We wanted to know more. We caught up with Alec, a 27-year-old who found himself homeless at the beginning of 2020 after facing some difficult personal circumstances. He was recently helped off the streets by Harangay Council as part of the Government's Everyone In scheme. We joined him and his key worker Fee to hear his story. I've been living in the UK since 2012 and only um, like faced homelessness um, last year, like this earlier this year because um, um, I used to work all the time and stuff like that but recently, I, I, first of all I lost my best friend and I lost my dad so <laughs> it kind of be stressful for me so <clears throat> I started start taking drugs that's how I become homeless. And so it's not, it's, not, it's not perfect. I've just been honest and real, I can say to you. So it's not a good thing to do, but it's just what happened to me, you know, trying to say so. And now I'm clean for three and a half months. I don't take anything else because I'm trying to change my life back. I'm trying to get back on track. Obviously, hiring a council helped me out. So in future, I want to get back to job as well. So start working. And you know what I mean? Because like, I'm, like the life I used to live when I was homeless is not, is not the one. The major outbreak of COVID-19 hits in March, and as part of everyone in, Harangay Council offer Alec a safe place to stay in a hotel. Funniest thing, the, way, the day I got housed, next day was my birthday. It was the 24th of March, my birthday is 25th of March, so 24th of March to 25th of March, she said, ah, don't worry, we've got a place for you, boom, boom, uh, she, she printed everything out and just sent me out there. So since then, I've been housed, but it's like a, it's like a real blessing, I can say to you, that's what I say to you, because like, as I told you, COVID-19 is a sad thing, but I mean, it only helped me to get a house and it happened just day before my birthday. So as you yeah. said, it's been shocking, but it's, um, it's a nice shock, as I, as I can say, you know, I'm trying to say to you. Unfortunately, hotels housing homeless around the Harangay area were full, 
meaning he had to originally be housed in a hotel in West London, an area he wasn't that familiar with. This posed a number of challenges for Alec. However, Harangay Council and Fee were working hard to try and find him accommodation back in North East London, in a place more familiar to him. It was so far because we're in North East London and I actually have to go all the way to West London, so literally across all the London. Yeah. When I came there, <clears throat> because at the time I even did, I had no phone, so the information, the address they actually gave it to me was a few houses next to where the hotel was, so I was panicking. Because I knock on the door, they say, no, nah, we don't know nothing about that. I have to walk around for half hour or so. Then I met somebody who was meant to go there as well. And eventually we found the hotel, but then when we found the hotel and they actually the person spoke to us, who told us, oh, yeah, the rooms is there. This, like, it's like a chest, it's like a yeah. store from, dropping from your chest. You know I mean? I do like, okay, that was okay. Because um, when you're sleeping rough, you know, it's just, uh, just a little things like have a shower and warm bed. It means a lot, you know, what I'm trying to say to you, because you can chill in your own personal area and watch a TV, you know, I mean, relax, maybe talk to your family members and say, you know what, everything is okay, I'm blessed. That, that was, a, I guess, that was a most relieving point, like, you know, what I mean, like, then I felt so happy. Eventually, the council came through and found Alec a hotel in Finsbury Park, back in North London. This helped him massively. Of course, like the first hotel was the, all right, but then obviously the fee they sent me the letters like, look, you are priority, so we've got a place for you, we've got a new project going on there, so we're going to send you there. I said, yeah, no problem, I don't mind because Finsbury Park is kind of, is close to area where I used to live Tottenham, so I know people from here because when they send me West London, I don't know nobody there. So it's like, you know, sometimes it's like, you just want to chat to somebody and like, find like, even just the person you know, we just find out how, how, how it is and maybe tell them what's on your mind or the person going to tell you what's on his mind and like, just express yourself and you start feeling better. So when they moved yeah. me in, in the beginning it was a little bit tough, I was stressed, I was still a little doing uh, things, bad things now and then, but um, then I realized myself like, if I'm not gonna do it myself, no one's gonna do it for me. Like there is a people here to help, but if they're not gonna see um, that kind of energy from you, that you wanna get help, you want to do something with your life, they're gonna do that, they're gonna give that hand to you, hand of help, but if you're not gonna do that yourself, it's not gonna happen, that's what I was thinking. So Alec got the move, and it's safe to say he was a lot happier and more settled. But what difference does having a place to call home do for you? How can it help you turn your life around? That's right, because like, as I told you, I was doing the drugs and you know, when you're living on the roads, on the streets, like sleeping rough, it's a little bit hard to get it off because mm. what are you thinking of, like for example, um, like right now, I don't want to do them because I got a house, I can go home, watch a TV, maybe cook a dinner, do plenty of different other things, but when you, stressed already and you're sleeping rough you got nothing else to do and that's the only thing you know like like that's only you know what to do so that's what you think when i got different options right now what to do because i told as i told you you and fee earlier like i want to find a job in the future you know what i mean i want to start working i can get back on track because like i want to have family as well things like that you know what i mean because it's like, like we're only living once and you have to do do something like as i told you i'm i'm european and i've been living here so for me because I was thinking a lot of my family because they was doing the sacrifices when I was younger. So for me to come in here and messing up my life like this, they wouldn't be happy with this. Like they would be looking at me as a, not as a waste, but as a disappointment, like in that kind of stage because, so I try to like each day I'm getting closer with them because like with a certain time I haven't spoke with my family at all because I was ashamed of myself, you know? But each day I'm getting closer and like, it make me encourage myself to make them proud. You know what I mean? Because like they done something back then and I'm still a young guy, it's like 
like all my life ahead of me. So I can't like just sit down there and say, our oh, life is not this and this. I have to do something. Plus there is the people like Fee and our key workers and I mean, kind of help me out. So. Another issue that was looming for Alec was that he had no passport, leading to a number of complications when it came to him looking to progress with his life and get back up on his feet. Fee made that a priority and helped Alec through the process. My problem was uh, I lost my passport. My passport got stolen. So I wasn't able to pay for it because my family don't have as much money. So it was a big problem maybe for a couple of months because I need to be enrolled in the benefits and to get my house in benefits. So I have to have actually paperwork for it. So I didn't have that. And I spoke to Fee and she said, okay, how much is it? We're going to pay for it. So that's when we both of us went to embassy. Yeah. When both of us, yeah, went to my embassy, done all the paperwork. So think fee and the current council now i got my passport my id card so i'm all legit and that's why basically it's her because um i was kind of shy to ask people like oh can you give me help and can you pay for it like it's just a pride i guess normal pride and yeah. i was thinking thinking just to leave it but she's like kind of was nagging me off oh, no no we have to do it we have to do it we have to do it yeah and she actually um put it through like to make a payment to win with me so to sort everything's out so thank you very much that's why i'm grateful to her and since I moved in, she's like one like our people have been checking me on a lot like as well like how are you how are you doing how are you finding yourself but she was the most she like who come and first of all she was calling me when I used to live in West London because it's quite far but when I start moved in the Finsbury Park almost every day but at least a couple of times a week I'm bumped into her and she always makes sure to ask her how are you what's going on like how is your progress with everything so I I can say um 100 she's a major major thing in in my like in my situation what's going on in my progress as well. Too much credit, oh, Too much credit. I just be honest. I just be honest. To be fair, I think um, you touched on some really important points, Alex, because it was really important for us that you had all of your rights and that you were going to get everything you were entitled to and we identified quite early that actually the ID was going to stop your EU settled status. Um, and so that was a real priority and I'm just really lucky because you took me down to the Estonian embassy which I have to say is beautiful and <laughs> lovely and you took time to help me understand so much about you know your life growing up and all the amazing things. You even persuaded me to visit Russia. Yeah, uh, believe don't worry, it or not. <laughs> um, you know, and I think the fact that you were so open to this stranger coming with you and you know it not feeling like a barrier in and of itself mm. i think you know i've got a huge amount of respect for you for that because a lot of people don't ask a lot of people don't think we can fund these things mm. but obviously like our main motivation is to make sure that you as a human get everything that you are entitled to yes. and also credit to you because you've been really open about the drug use and that meant we could like practically talk about it mm -hmm. um, in a way that I hope has left you feeling like you know less stigma around it yeah, because fair. we know it happens mm -hmm. um, and just letting you know that we're there for you when we want to be but I think you've absolutely smashed it your resilience and like motivation is like unparalleled man it's amazing thank you um, thank you thank you very much you know and I really feel like um, you're such an asset because you bring a lot to the space yourself mm -hmm. you uh, you've encouraged people to talk to us open up to us that has helped them mm -hmm. take the steps you've acted as a role model in that space you've helped people negotiate feeling their frustrations but also as a young man being able to articulate you know like yeah this is really tough and really shit exactly, yeah. I think is really powerful and really realistic and it makes such a difference in that community so thank you yeah you're welcome man's same, a legend <laughs> Thank you, thank you. It's mutual, it's mutual. <laughs> so what's next for Alec? 
What does the future hold for him? Well, um, I'm still waiting for my settlement status. So that's the main point too, because um, my benefits is just waiting only for that. So obviously for now, like I want to go work, but for now I'm not going to be rushing because there's a lockdown happening. You don't know what's going to happen next year. Christmas is around the corner. So my first thing is get my settlement status, get my benefits, get myself housed. That's for my main priority. Hopefully it's going to be done um, by the Christmas because I don't want to spend Christmas in a hotel. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully it's going to happen um, by then. And New Year is new me, so obviously I will try to find a job. The past have been, I want to leave it in the past. I don't want to come back to it. I want to just go f- forward. That's the only thing. And yeah, I found a job. Hopefully, I'm, j- I'm looking for kind of receptionist jobs or something. And plus, V told me there's a positions going on with a ca- hiring a council. And she's telling me it's going to be good for me because I got experience with it. I experienced it myself. So for me, kind of work with people and explain to them, understand them, is going to be more easier. But I can't tell nothing now, so we're going to see the future, what future holds for us, that's what I can say. I wanted to hear a bit more about what Fee and her team have been doing on the ground since the outbreak. I took a bit of time to talk to her when Alec had left. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's kind of... The ways we've been helping have been, I don't know, might be considered quite minor, but I have to say, at the first point we got everybody together and we were providing breakfast and dinner, like people physically started changing they looked less tired their cheeks were rosy you know they were more uplifted and I have to say that that was probably one of the most positive things that I'd seen because I'd known a lot of these individuals from across the year at Marlborough Junction and seeing the difference of just regular diet and nutrition you know as simple as it sounds made the utmost difference but then I suppose we've been instrumental as a team in containing COVID in and of itself. We had a case at one of our hotels um, and we managed it really, really safely uh, and avoided, of course, an outbreak because you would never want 100 plus people to become unwell. And the uh, resident, you know, obviously emailed the team to thank them for keeping her so safe and feeling really, really supported and the difference that that had made to her. So that was a really sort of positive in terms of managing everybody's safety and knowing that she felt good in that and not stigmatised and not scared and knew that we were there on hand for her. Um, But a lot of the other cases are around, you know, finally getting people's EUSS status and getting them signed up to Universal Credit, making new referrals to, um, to housing so they can genuinely move on to something far more independent um and you know we've had really positive outcomes in partnership with our housing needs team and that's just wonderful especially when people message us or pop back to tell us how happy they are in their new studio or their new shared house um and doing that follow-up work as well to make sure they're still well they've got everything they need in their homes they're being yeah those kind of cases i think are really wonderful i think we have undoubtedly kept people alive. So looking forward, what's needed to tackle this in the long term? I think in the long term, the increase or that suggested uh, number of, you know, uh, social housing developments is absolutely crucial, but it's not immediate enough. I think it's really important that we look to the future and recognise that, you know, without any drastic legislative changes, this is a position that we are facing and have been for some time. As I said, I started in 2012 and I've definitely not seen it get any better. So I think making sure that we have really solid, firm, um, you know, plans and commitments 
to achieve those will be fundamental because the instability that lack of housing brings to individuals and the impact that it has on young people growing up in households um, where this is a constant kind of concern and anxiety um, you know, is really, really detrimental to people's well-being and all the things that they are going to be able to achieve in their lives. Like, housing is a human right. <laughs> and I think, you know, a lot more needs to be done around that and that we can't rely on the private rented sector in the way that we are because it's unsustainable and it doesn't necessarily in and of itself meet the needs of the individuals needing to access housing. So that's what's happening on the ground. But what about the national picture? We caught up with Matt Downey, MBE, who is Director of Policy and External Affairs at the homelessness charity, Crisis. We asked him about the national trends in homelessness prior to COVID-19 and how the pandemic is expected to affect these trends after. Yes, it's, it's, I think it's important to, re- to recognise that, that actually, <clears throat> before the pandemic hit, um, you know, homelessness had been in in basically almost all of its forms have been going up quite rapidly um, since about 2008. So really, it goes back to the financial crash and then um, some of the, the policy choices that were made after that. And that isn't just rough sleeping. Um, and, and it's important to note that rough sleeping is obviously the worst form of homelessness for people that experience it. But it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of the numbers. And local councils will will tell you up and down the country that you know actually it's it's not just that it's the thousands of people on waiting lists for housing who are given some form of statutory um right to to housing it's also the the thousands of people who are sofa surfing living in unsuitable temporary accommodation hostels night shelters and if you add all of that together um there was you know a, a, before the pandemic hit around about 170,000 people and households living in in those worst forms of homelessness and that's been you know that's been kind of uh a, a sort of decades long story that's really to do with the lack of affordable uh housing and particularly social social housing but also over time the sort of the gap between what welfare can pay for in terms of the cost of rent and the reality of rent has got wider and wider and wider. Um, so, so you can see why people um, fall into homelessness when they're sort of on a, on a macro level, not just not, not the, the safety net that's needed to, to catch people. But you can also see why it's so much harder for councils these days to actually help people out of homelessness. And that's, so, so in in a sense, we've got two problems. One is how do you prevent it, and then how do you stop it after it's after it's occurred. And both of those problems have become much worse um, in the run up to the pandemic. And and you know, uh, you know, sitting here now in December, um, none of those problems have been resolved. Covid nineteen hits, and councils across the country carry out work to get everyone sleeping on the streets into sheltered accommodation. Thanks to the program. Government figures show that councils got 90% of those sleeping on the streets in. With that said, did it work? Okay, so so the, the everyone in scheme is um, <clears throat> is in some ways a kind of uh, a miracle. In some ways, it's a it, um, <laughs> it's really not. So so it needs unpacking a bit. And um, if we take ourselves back to the 25th of March when Louise Casey sent her her email saying, "Let's get everyone in by the weekend." Um, and and 
uh, she also said, let's get everyone out of night shelters uh, by the weekend as well, <clears throat> because they're not safe um, from COVID. Um, what we saw was sort of remarkable in, 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 the, in the way in which that represented um, a collective vision and a, and a collective purpose and sense of energy for dealing with the worst forms of homelessness in a decisive way that we'd not seen before. And, you know, probably the last time there was that kind of level of um, centralised and central government vision and intent was when Louise Casey was, was working in government before, which was in the late 90s and early 2000s when rough sleeping went down by two thirds. And that so so it definitely did bring a level of success. And, and it's important to note that uh, many thousands of people were helped off the streets and out of night shelters. So so around 15,000 people were given some form of emergency accommodation that was self-contained. Um, and two things happened. One was that uh, the um, threat of the virus was much reduced for, for that population of people and the and a, and a study published in the Lancet showed that over 20,000 people who um, amongst the homeless population who would have otherwise contracted the virus didn't contract the virus so hundreds of people avoided hospitalization and 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 death and that that is to be celebrated um unequivocally and without kind of um you know any sort of um, doubt as as one of the most impressive pieces of kind of central government activity we've seen on homelessness in um, well ever really Um, but also it's worth it's worth noting that that people who were put into emergency accommodation were still homeless they were just in emergency accommodation and some of those people have been in hostels some have been on the streets some in night shelters some people who'd who just quickly come into homelessness because of the effect of the pandemic um so it, it's in, it's not that everyone in uh, ended rough sleeping. It's not that 90% of people who were rough sleeping were no longer rough sleeping. Um, actually, the 90% stat is slightly misleading because uh, what it actually means is that 90% of people who were seen by local councils at that point in late March were given some some form of offer. Um, you That doesn't mean that 90% of people um, who uh, were rough sleeping were no longer rough sleeping. It doesn't even get anywhere near the 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 idea that 90% of rough sleeping is over it's not um and we've now seen the return really the so the most reliable numbers are in london where we've got a really good database um for for this and it shows that essentially rough sleeping went up um dramatically as people essentially came out of the woodwork and um and were given given emergency accommodation at much higher levels than we realized were out there um before the pandemic um, and rough sleeping uh, obviously went, as, uh, you know, thousands of people went into emergency accommodation. But what we now see is that on every on a gi- any given night, um, the numbers are pretty much where they were before the pandemic, maybe slightly lower, which is good news. And we should celebrate that. But what it's not done is has taken is not in any way taken the majority of rough sleeping away. So is the situation worse than we feared? Was the effort all in vain? There are loads of councils that have done that have worked miracles, absolutely have worked miracles, and and I think it's it's sometimes a shame that that the credit for this goes to central government um, for its direction and its funding, when whereas actually the logistics of it and and you know the practicality has been 
local councils, housing options officers, um, local charities and, and faith groups in, in real communities up and down the country. That's the success story here for me. And the the way in which people took that signal to say, right, let's up our game, let's up our expectations for what success means here and let's and let's run with that has meant um lasting success in lots of places and we've seen councils I mean I, I can't name them all but councils like Newcastle like Southwark like Norwich um like Liverpool really step up and do things that were not just what Louise Casey was asking for but much more as well so what next what needs to happen to help the situation post pandemic well back in back in March what what was really striking about the way the government um talked to local councils uh, about this issue is is the what louise said in her email was um that essentially the um any any of the previous rules and restrictions particularly about who shouldn't be helped into accommodation ignore them all this is a public health emergency don't worry if somebody who previously wouldn't have qualified for local support um, is now given support, and and you know that's the right thing to do. This is a really interesting message to give across because all of us have known, including I mean, local council uh, housing teams more than anyone, but all of us have known for many years that we've got this two tier system of of people that qualify for help and those that don't, and many of those that don't. Uh, when you look at it, it's just it's cruel, it's arbitrary. You know, if if you if you could be deemed to have a uh, have caused your own homelessness or somehow don't can't prove that the local connection to the area is the right one or even if you've been living in this country for decades um, when it comes to it um, and you need help you don't have recourse to public funds you know all of these things uh, were ignored to start with and and we said as a country that we would help people because they need help not because they qualify for help and that so I think that the the number one thing that needs to be continued, not just through the pandemic, but as a as a principle for how we address homelessness, is that um, the the reason that people need help is because they are at risk of homelessness or or experiencing it, not because the law says they meet some arbitrary criteria. So so I would say the first thing is that clarity is needs to be back, and there are plenty of councils that even today will say they don't actually know who they, who they should be helping. They don't know if it's legal uh, even to be helping people, certainly um, those who, who were born outside the UK but are homeless in the UK. Um, so that that absolutely needs needs clarifying. Um, but of course it needs paying for as well. And, you know, before the pandemic, local councils in England were spending over a billion pounds a year on temporary accommodation. Um, and let's be clear, that's temporary accommodation that the people are still homeless in. Um to, and you know, that bill um, is sits over and above the housing benefit bill, and it's and it's crippling the budgets of of lots and lots of councils, um, and so you can't up the expectations on helping people who are homeless, particularly when the causes of homelessness are all still there, and expect local authorities to be able to pay for it. Um, what the government will rightly say, and they should be should be credited for, is that there have been pots of funding. So there's there's the protect money that came out in a couple of weeks ago. There was fifteen million pounds of that. There was the next steps funding that you talked about. There was the initial three point two million that came out as well. Um, these these kind of um, almost kind of one off 
uh, kind of bursts of funding or you know every time they come out what 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 crisis has to do in uh, and we always feel kind of um, that we've kind of got no choice but would rather say something else what we always have to say is this is good but it's not everything that's needed and we sound like a broken record so does the LGA so does every single council we say you know thank you but not good enough and and you know I know full well because I've spoken to um, central government officials about this that they feel like that they can sometimes that they they can't get it right that whatever they do whatever they the, whatever battles they win with the treasury to get more money for homelessness we will always say it's not enough and I think to a certain extent they're right as well that um, you know this we've we've got to get off this merry-go-round of of short bursts of funding particularly because it you know what often happens is local councils will put in a kind of exceptional bid to do something that meets the criteria of so for for example the next steps funding where you're asked to provide some form of accommodation for a year or so for for somebody when they know full well the answer is long term if not permanent accommodation particularly for rough sleepers with complex needs um and you know short funding rounds of course they'll bid for them but they know what they really want is a secure source of um revenue funding particularly for the support for these people over a longer period of time so yes more funding um and probably more so i would say than the funding we've got to reset the principle of who gets helped so maybe the picture around homelessness isn't as clear cut as it seems Although the government's Everyone In scheme seems to have saved thousands of lives and may have given many, like Alec, an opportunity to turn their lives around, work is still needed to be done to provide a permanent option for those facing homelessness and to stop people returning to the streets in the coming months. Everyone In did, however, provide a new, ambitious, localised approach to homelessness. It gave councils and their partners the tools and opportunity to get people housed. Although still a temporary solution, it could be something to be explored further as we look at new ways to help the country's homeless post-pandemic. I'm Ben Murray, and you've been listening to the Forget What You Think You Know podcast.